You are listening to National Security Law Today. Welcome to National Security Law Today, the podcast of the American Bar Association Standing Committee on Law and National Security. I am Nicole, a member of the committee staff hosting with Elisa and Yvette, who are national security attorneys who are here as individuals, not on behalf of their agencies or firms. During the podcast, you can find links to the Black Letter Laws and articles on today's topics at our website, AmericanBar.org slash NatSecurity, or in the notes to this podcast. At the end of the cast, please drop us a note at NationalSecurity at AmericanBar.org, on Twitter at ABANatSec, or on our Facebook page. The Standing Committee has two upcoming events we'd like to advise you of. November 15th, the day this podcast comes out, two of our committee members and former guests on this podcast, Suzanne Spaulding and Harvey Rishikoff, will be speaking at a CSIS event called Countering Adversary Attacks on Democracy with Senator Mark Warner. And on December 4th, the committee will be holding a breakfast event in D.C. where John Carlin, the former Assistant Attorney General to the Department of Justice National Security Division, will be speaking on his book, Dawn of the Code War, about battles that the U.S. is fighting in cyberspace. Visit our website, AmericanBar.org slash NatSecurity for more on those events. In this week's episode, we're going to pick up our conversation that we started last week with Dr. Bradley Hart, an assistant professor at California State University, Fresno. We are talking to him today about his book, Hitler's American Friends, the Third Reich Supporters in the United States, and the history of foreign influence operations in America, especially those that try to influence the country's national security policy. If you missed part one of this conversation, go back and listen to last week's episode, where we set the scene with Dr. Hart laying out the different influences from foreign agents as well as from America's own military and commercial interests. I wanted to shift gears and ask you a little bit about the commercial, you know, relationship between the U.S. and Germany. At the time, Germany was a large export market for the U.S. and one of our biggest trading partners. And some of America's largest businesses still wanted the United States to remain on the sidelines during World War II. So how did they get their, um, their message across to the government? Yeah, that's absolutely right. Germany is a key market for the for the U.S. in this period, and part of the reason for that is that after World War One, Germany is is a massively underdeveloped country. It had suffered a huge amount of war damage, casualties were, were really high, and so American companies see an opportunity in the early 1920s, before the Great Depression set in, to make a huge amount of money here. And the most classic example of this is the automotive industry, where uh, both General Motors and Ford enter the German market in the early 1920s. General Motors buys Opel, which becomes a subsidiary there. Ford opens its own plant. Uh, and this is seen as a huge market because the only automobile producers that are actually German are Mercedes-Benz and some of the high-end retailers. So there's no real affordable cars for the average person. And so these companies jump into the German market with, with both feet. They invest very heavily. And then in 1933, when Hitler comes to power, he actually slashes taxes on automobile sales. So this is seen as a huge opportunity. And then, of course, his other main economic innovation is building the Autobahn. So suddenly we have a huge number of freeways. There's a huge demand for automobiles. Um, good little aside trivia. Hitler then runs a contest to see who can design an autom- automobile for this. Uh, the guy who wins it is named Ferdinand Porsche, and he designs the Volkswagen Bug. So literally the people's automobile. And yes, there are photos, if you go on Google, of Hitler sitting in the back of a prototype Volkswagen bug, which is just kind of weird. Um, Yikes. So Americans <laughs> are very heavy in Germany at this point. Um, yeah, don't picture Hitler in the back of a Volkswagen bug. It's just kind of weird. No, weird. thank you. Um, <laughs> but yeah, so, so German commercial investment in Germany is very high. And so 
when the when things start going sour between the U.S. and Germany in 36, 37, 38, these companies are kind of stuck. Are you really going to walk away from the German market, especially if you're a publicly traded company like General Motors? Can you justify to your shareholders just giving up this capital? It becomes virtually impossible from at least that standpoint. And so these companies are stuck. They actually can't take their money out because the Germans have passed uh, capital restrictions on, on taking money out of the country. And so they're just sort of sitting with these very effective, very modern factories. And, of course, the end of that story is that the Germans end up appropriating them for aircraft production. And so both the Ford plant in Cologne and the Opel plant end up building components for aircraft that end up bombing London and bombing Allied positions during the war. And assuredly, a, a large number of people lost their lives because of these investments. So, so these are just two examples. Um, I talk about Coca-Cola in the book, which jumped very heavily into the German market to the point where some German POWs being brought to the U.S. supposedly saw a sign for Coca-Cola. They were pulling into New Jersey and were amazed because they thought it was an authentically German company. Um, and so Coca-Cola becomes a huge deal. Um, IBM gets involved, tabulating the population, and of course later on concentration camp inmates as well. Um, and so, so this is this is essentially globalization, right? This is the linking of companies to one another across national boundaries. And in this case, it gets the U.S. or gets American soldiers into real trouble. And there's a great irony, as I point out in the book, that. Um, by the end of the war, you have American bombers bombing factories that were at one time owned by American investors. And so you're literally blowing up your own capital to that extent. Wow. You know, I, I think one of the things that's interesting that you note in your book is, um, you know, it sounds in retrospect like it should be so obvious. I mean, the Nazis, uh, you know, perpetrated the Holocaust. You know, they committed the Blitz. Um, you, you have to sort of wonder what people understood in America at the time that some of this was ongoing. And in particular, I wonder who in the country at that time was susceptible to messages from an organization and a country that, you know, is, uh, was obviously, uh, so, you know, utterly venal in terms of its, its activities. Yeah, no, again, this is where we get into some really disturbing stuff. Uh, one thing that comes across very clearly, I think, in the book is that Americans in this period were much more afraid of communism than they were of fascism. And I cite some polling from the mid-1930s where the Gallup organization asks Americans that if they had to choose between living under a fascist regime or a communist regime, which would they choose? And a slight plurality of them actually say fascism. So communism is the least popular. I think about a third of the respondents actually don't answer the question, which could mean they either didn't think they knew enough about them or didn't want to answer for whatever reason. But certainly the plurality of, of Americans in that poll at least say they want to live under fascism. And, and this is partially because the, the atrocities of communism were much more known. As you say, the Holocaust hadn't happened yet. The Blitz hadn't happened yet. Everyone sort of knew the Nazis were anti-Semitic. I mean, they didn't cover it up, but the Kristallnacht of 1938 hadn't happened yet, so there was no real evidence as to what was going to happen there. The communism had already claimed millions of lives in the Russian Revolution and the ensuing Russian Civil War. So, so this fear of communism, I think, was really at the heart of this, and I think also implicit prejudice, and this is something that also was really disturbing in writing this book, just the amount of anti-Semitism that existed both in a casual sense but also an overt sense in the, in the United States in this period was really immense. I cite some polling from right before the war that indicates that about 30% of Americans wanted Jews to just leave the country. They wanted to get rid of them in some quote-unquote humane fashion, but this, of course, means some form of deportation at a minimum. And, and this is a pretty substantial minority of the country. I mean, a third of the country wanting anything is, is certainly something that should be, should be examined. 
Um, and so this level of prejudice is really important. And this is what the Nazis are, are kind of brilliant at taking advantage of. They realize that this division already exists in American society. And if they can play this up, this is a way to, at a minimum, paralyze public opinion. It's a way to cause big trouble for the Roosevelt administration. Um, and it's a way to potentially achieve their aims in other ways. So I think it's a combination of a fear of communism. Of course, the Great Depression we can throw in there as well, this sort of economic turmoil, but also just this, this really strong undercurrent of prejudice that existed. That really leads into another question. I'm really interested in the mechanics of this foreign interference. You wrote uh, that the Germans were, quote, trying to encourage apathy and confusion by sowing discord, discrediting the British, and turning Americans against one another. The Germans were hoping to dissuade the United States government from any action at all. It just, it's, it's reminiscent of foreign interference that we have experienced more recently. And the, the other thing that, that is at the end of that passage is that the German objective was to sow confusion and discord so American people would grow weary and simply want to check out of world events. Why was this strategy so important to the Third Reich? Well, it's important in some ways because of the nature of democracy. Our system and our institutions, of course, rely upon a democratic will to do things or a democratic will to, to persist along a certain course. And when that doesn't exist, of course, this can lead to political paralysis or inevitably will lead to political paralysis. So the Nazis realized this very well. In fact, this is, this is part of their critique of democracy in a sort of an abstract sense is that democracy can never be fascism, they claim, because it doesn't have the political will. You cannot meld the nation into one unit that, that, that can beat a fascist country in that sense, according to them, at least. And of course, we know, fortunately, that they're wrong about that. But this is, this is exactly the essence of what they're trying to do. They're not trying to push the U.S. in any direction. They're trying to push us into no direction. They're trying to sow so much confusion, so much distrust of the government, so much distrust of, of media outlets that the American people just get tired of it, effectively, and just check out and say, you know what, we shouldn't, shouldn't get involved in that faraway war in Europe because I don't want my son to, to die there, potentially. I don't want to spend the money. It's just not our business, effectively. And that's where you get into these really disturbing things where they're, they're literally pitting Americans against one another in an effort to, to sow the amount of discord that would convince the American people that it's just not worth it to go on any further. So, uh, you know, obviously we, we stand today, I think most Americans would agree that we're at a time of deep divisions in our country when probably the reality is that we have a lot more in common with one another um, than would suit the Russians. Um, but uh, the, the Department of Justice has published a foreign malign influence campaign report, which reveals very clearly what the Russians were doing with respect to the run-up to the 2016 election. And naturally, today, Election Day, there are plenty of concerns um, that we have about um, foreign influence campaigns, particularly those that are unattributed, um, occurring on social media that are generated by troll farms um, in Russia. And, you know, you compare the Nazis' tactics to what we're seeing happening today. Um, it, it seems so obvious because the parallels are just incredible. They jump out of your book. Um, and, and I hope people buy it because I just don't think that this history is that well understood or recalled today. But can you talk a little bit more about these parallels and what, um, what sort of prompted you to draw them as directly as you did? 
Well, it's been interesting about writing this book is that I started writing it in 2014. So at the time, there were, of course, no obvious parallels. And then events sort of caught up to, to the writing and the research of the book, which was a really interesting experience. Um, I think it's very clear that, that what we're seeing from foreign actors now is essentially identical to what was going on in the 1930s, 40s, and indeed in the 50s, too, um, with, with what the Soviets attempt to do. But it's all about the idea of taking existing divisions within the country and exacerbating them. The Nazis are great fans of using particularly racial tension because they are, of course, themselves racist fundamentally uh, and trying to inflame this. Um, I, I quote Hitler himself talking about America and saying that the country is doomed because of its racial and ethnic diversity, that there's no way he could perceive it ever being a true world power. It admits, of course, that it has huge factories and great men in his mind, like Henry Ford, who he greatly admires, but doesn't believe that it really has any future. He thinks the future is with the, the racially pure German Reich. And so that gives the Nazis a, a really clear vision of how they can interfere with American politics. They can inflame all of these tensions. They can create violence. And this is why they love Father Coughlin and the Christian Front, because he's leading to violence against Jews in various places. Um, and, and I think this is, this is really what they recognize. And we know that the, the Soviets do the same thing later on, taking existing divisions and trying to just inflame them to cause maximum disruption and, and or violence in even some cases. We're seeing the same thing now. You referenced the Department of Justice report a moment ago. We know that the Russians um, attempted to even inspire real-world action in some cases by setting up rallies um, simultaneously between two seemingly opposing sides and things like that. And I think the way to defeat this stuff is by realizing exactly what you just said, which is that we have more in common with each other now than we do with anyone else. We're all, we're all Americans in that sense. And that, I think, is what pulls the U.S through this earlier period is, is in some ways Pearl Harbor and the coming of World War II, but I think also the realization that, that Americans shouldn't be or can't be that easily divided. And the U.S. government actually does a great deal of, of de-radicalization work, um, both during and after the war, to try to convince people that they shouldn't be hating on um, certain groups or shouldn't, shouldn't fall into these sort of hateful traps. Yeah, and ultimately this propaganda effort that you described by the Nazis did fail. The United States ended up entering the war against them. Can you talk about some of the things that the United States and the U.S. government did to keep Hitler's friends from being successful here in this country? Yeah, so, so a large part of it involves legislation. So the most famous act um, that many of the listeners will be familiar with is the Foreign Agents Registration Act. And this was passed in 1938 um, as a way to sort of combat the rising influence, actually, of not only Nazism, but in some people's minds, the rising influence of the British as well. Um, and actually, I went back and looked at the debate that involved the passage of FARA in preparation for this, and it's actually very interesting. So FARA passes pretty much unanimously about the House and the Senate. There's no real opposition that's recorded. It goes to conference committee and is only minorly amended. But the, the introducer of FARA originally was um, John W. McCormack, who later on will become Speaker of the House for Massachusetts. Um, and McCormack says when he's introducing FARA that this legislation is designed to, quote, expose them, by that he means the propagandists, to the pitiless light of publicity. The passage of this bill will label such propaganda just as the law requires us to label poison. So the intention of FARA is to, is to essentially subject people who are interjecting um, sort of propaganda of any sort of foreign origin, I suppose, um, to the light of publicity. So it's not to necessarily impugn people's First Amendment rights, which is, of course, a very serious matter, but it's to give the American people the, the understanding of where that information and where especially the money for that information is coming from. So FARA is passed in 1938, again, fairly uncontroversial. Roosevelt signs it into law, and 
we actually see the indictments of, of George Sylvester Virek, who I mentioned a moment ago, and a number of Hitler's other agents under this law. So FARA is incredibly effective in that sense. And then interestingly, um, almost falls into disuse for, for a few decades until actually fairly recently as well. So um, FARA is, is probably the most important part of, of this legislative process. And it does a great deal to inspire fear among these German agents. Certainly when I've looked in the archival record, you see people when FARA gets passed suddenly panicking and wondering, oh my gosh, where did that money come from that I actually used to publish this isolationist tract or something like that? Um, and that includes members of Congress, incidentally, who have these sort of concerns. Um, and so, so far is really important. We also have the, uh, the Dyes Committee. So uh, Congressman Martin Dyes Jr. of Texas is the head of this, is later on the committee that will become HUAC, House on American Activities. And Dyes does a great deal to try to shut these organizations down. Now, he is a very controversial figure because um, he was accused of targeting the left and labor unions particularly. But in 1938-39, he actually investigates the German-American Bund, investigates the Silver Legion, and he subjects them as well to the light of publicity. And so he becomes really a, a key figure despite some of his other foibles in that sense. So what's interesting is that the U.S. government is really effective in this period in shutting down the subversive operations. I think it's really a, an interesting model that we can look at today facing somewhat similar threats. All right. Well, you're you're making some incredible um, points here. And it's good to hear that any legislation had some efficacy. Obviously, we have talked previously in this podcast about um, whether or not FARA would need to be at some point amended to reflect uh, current technology. But uh, let me jump forward. Uh, what I'd like to do is ask you what you would like to see people take away from your book. Well, I think there's two takeaways here. I think the first is that we are not immune as Americans to the lure of really dangerous and really frankly, hateful ideologies. And it's really disturbing when you think about how many people got sucked into these things. As we said at the beginning of this podcast, many of them were rationally minded, well-intentioned individuals who simply became the dupes of a, of a foreign influence campaign in this sense. So, so I think that's point one, is that we need to constantly be on our guard. We need to guard our institutions. We need to um, be responsible in the way that we engage with government and, and things of that sort. It's really critical. And that leads into my second point, which is that I think our, our lawmakers need to realize their own responsibility in this as well, our policymakers. One of the reasons why Hitler's American friends never really succeed is because the political parties lock them out of power. So just to give one short example, in 1938, there's a Nazi sympathizer running for the Republican nomination in Kansas and is poised to win the nomination and potentially the election as well. And the National Republican Party steps in to run a sort of mainstream I think it's a former governor against him who actually wins the election. And so so that's an example of, of the type of sort of responsible policymaking, responsible politics that I think are essential because, again, our, our democracy relies upon everyone sort of operating with a certain set of premises in that sense. And I think it's really critical for us to remember that um, preservation of democracy requires effort on all of our on all of our parts really all the time. So I just want to add, I want to close with a with kind of a provocative question. You know, you're making some really interesting, you're drawing some interesting conclusions in your book um, and making some comparisons. But to paraphrase Godwin, don't you lose the argument once you compare one situation to Hitler or the World War II? Um, is it hyperbole? Is it, is it too, is it a bridge too far to draw the parallel between, you know, those times and these times? Yeah, well, that, that's a really good question. I, th I think Godwin has this his law temporarily. I can't <laughs> <laughs> That's true. <laughs> in some cases, 
the comparison becomes acceptable. Um, but, but I think that's a really good question. And I, I think there's an element of truth to that because for a long time, people have sort of thrown around these analogies and it's sort of become the, the boy who cries wolf phenomenon to some extent. I think that's a very fair criticism. I don't think that this book makes direct comparisons. I think that it's, it's impossible to compare two individuals, a Hitler and, and anybody else in two different times. I mean, history never repeats itself in that, that way. But what does repeat are the patterns. And the patterns that we're seeing today and the patterns that we see in the 1930s, there are analogies there. Now, I don't want to don't want to go too far in that direction. We are not America in the midst of the Great Depression, fortunately. We are not Germany in the 1920s, thankfully. Um, and I don't think we're ever going to get to those points because that was a different period in history. But I think we do have to be cognizant of the emerging patterns that do look similar in some ways, especially in terms of uh, foreign influence, which I think is, is a critical aspect of all this. And, and I have no doubt whatsoever that, that the rise of extremism in this country is in some ways being derived from those types of influence as well. But I think we also have to look at what's happening in terms of domestic radicalization, in terms of the emergence of extremist groups that that we saw in Charlottesville. The fact that these folks are now once again marching in the streets carrying swastikas, I think, is very troubling. So, so again, I certainly don't want to make the case that we are Germany in any period of the 1930s or the 1920s or any other country at any other time, for that matter. We are United States in 2018, fortunately. Um, but I think we need to be cognizant of those patterns and, and ready to draw upon historical examples as, as we need to. All right, Bradley, it's been a pleasure to have you here to, today. I really am glad that I found your book. Um, and again, the book is called Hitler's American Friends, the Third Reich's Supporters in the United States. It's available right now at your favorite bookseller. We're really glad you came in. Well, thank you very much for having me. It's been a pleasure. Um, Bradley, we hope to have you back when your next book comes out. Thank you for listening to National Security Law Today, the podcast of the ABA Standing Committee on Law and National Security. Tune in again for our next episode. All right, we're going to cut it short today because I think this podcast should be uh, dedicated to the victims uh, in Pittsburgh. Thank you so much for listening. I hope you'll join us again next time on National Security Law Today, which is brought to you by the American Bar Association's Standing Committee on Law and National Security. Join us on November 15th. Uh, we're going to have the CIS presentation, CSIS rather presentation called Countering Adversary Attacks on Democracy, which I think follows very nicely on this podcast, um, where not only will Suzanne Spalding and Harvey Rishikoff, uh, two committee uh, stalwarts, be there, but we'll also be joined by Senator Mark Warner. And on December 4th, we'll be joined by Jar John Carlin, former Assistant Attorney General to NSD. So check us out at AmericanBar.org slash NatSecurity for more on those events and follow us on Twitter at ABA NatSec. From all of us here, thanks for listening and we'll see you next time. The views expressed on national security law today have not been approved by the House of Delegates or the Board of Governors of the American Bar Association and accordingly should not be construed as representing ABA policy.